It is the book feature, and today we are hosting the author of the book that we're going to be discussing. I am sure many of you will want to be a part of this conversation. The lines are now open. It's 0891-104-207. Just pick up the phone, whether it's just to say hello, whether it's to ask a question. Go right ahead and do that. Who is my guest? Nolita Fakuda is my guest. Um, they called you corporate activist. We'll talk about that in a short while. But she's also the author of a book called Boardroom Dancing. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you so much, Pamelo, and uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. You know, I was just thinking the other day, I thought to myself, I, you, when you went on what I would, I don't know if it was a sabbatical, I don't know what term you used in your mind. Um, it was say, a gap year. It, it was, I took <laughs> a gap year. I didn't a, use a sabbatical. <laughs> sabbatical means you are coming back. Yes. For me, it was a gap year, and the intention was that there's no agenda. Well, I just needed the time out. The time out. Yes. It didn't quite work out that way, did it? It, it, it was time out to perhaps uh, reflect, but it also became quite productive. Indeed. I think the the fact that it was a gap year, it, I felt I had permission to do the things that I've always wanted to do mm. without feeling guilty. Yes. You know, you come from a background of being yes. or feeling guilty that you are particularly not you. an agenda. Particularly you. Particularly yeah. someone like me, of yes. course. Yeah. And it was productive because I had said, even though it was going to be an open year, yeah. I wanted to be able to achieve three things. Yes. One of them was to be able just to download the stuff that I had in my head mm. and in my heart mm. around my career and my journey over 27 years and not know where that is going to take me. Secondly, I also wanted to be able to sleep uh, and catch up on my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> because again, you, you, you run and run and you don't feel that you are getting to reconnect with yourself. And I wanted to also reconnect with my family and just recalibrate. I'm so curious about the sleep because I wonder what kind of sleep catch up you do when you've been at it since you're eight. I wonder what kind of <laughs> a lot you exactly know, yes. because I started working when I was eight years old as I say in the book and one of my biggest issues always has been around the fact that I had to be up by six o'clock in the morning to open the for shop. the bakery yeah. and and therefore I've always felt that I hadn't had enough sleep yeah. and and also just to be able to have time to yourself because sleeping is not about really the deep sleep but to feel that you are having your own space that uh, is uninterrupted. I am so grateful that um, when you put the book together and initially my understanding is that it was purely to assist those who who seek um, mentorship um, to, uh, guidance mm. to say you know what how do I do this how do I get to be on a board and so on but but the insistence of the publishers to say no 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 bring yourself into the fold I say that because there are hallmarks that if you look at the thread make perfect sense to how things panned out in the boardroom, for instance, right? Yes, so yes. that, for instance, discipline, waking up mm. in the morning as an eight-year-old, mm. um, being able to engage, being able to negotiate, being yeah. able to be adaptable, all those little mm. things you may dismiss as not quite a child who understands what they're doing, but they did at some level affect who and impact who you became. Mm. 
I, I think, Pamela, it, it's more the, the a lesson for all of us that your life and, and the journey that you have in your life, certain milestones that even at the time you may not have been aware of, they actually put an imprint on you and define who you are going to be and and eventually how some of the the subconscious actions that you think are not there show themselves up in different processes so definitely the issue around the discipline and also wanting to start something and finish it mm. you you realize that it's part of that small voice that was uh, there from way back when for someone who grows up with a particular narrative in your case just being surrounded and being led by women where that's not a phenomena right where that's your mm. natural background at what point does it the penny drop that actually that influence and that is very different to how the rest of the world operates? I think when I started formally working uh, in 1990, so you've got to picture the world, 1990 today, my, it's a celebration of the 30 years of Utato Mandela coming out of prison. I started by sheer coincidence, I started working June 1990. Wow. And the world in corporate South Africa before 1990 was definitely different to what we have today. And, and, and the faces were white, male, Anglo-Saxon, and also the, the faces were definitely not black, nor even woman. And if you started working 1990 in Cape Town, in, and, and when you get to the Western Cape in 1990, you realize that as an African black person, a black woman, you, are, you don't feature just anyway in the book, I, in, in the world. And in the book, I talk about it. I tell a story of one of the ladies who was working in our canteen, whom for almost a year, I had thought that she was colored, you know, because we always spoke in English until the day her son came to visit her at work. And I happened to know the son. And when he was leaving, I said to him, oh, you came to visit, who did you come to visit? And he, saw, he said, I came to visit mom. And so I went to her, Mrs. So-and-so. I didn't know that you are so-and-so's mom. And I'm saying this loudly, proudly in Kosa, and she says, please, please, please mm. don't say anything because I got this role and mm. this job just by not saying that I'm Kosa. Mm. So you realize that even in the whole uh, life cycle that we had at the time, that as a black person and as a woman, uh, you just didn't feature much. For me, that was the biggest shock of my life. So many things I want to touch on that you, you refer to in the book, but... Again, again, I want to ask you about what came across as sometimes chutzpah. But then I think, no, it couldn't have been for you. That was natural, right? So I'm now reminded of a very funny story you relay around your Woolworths, Woolies um, interview. Yes. Where very naively you just told the, the big people sitting on the table that, no, I'm going to be a director in five years. <laughs> <laughs> However... 15 years down the line, you were a director. Well, full circle. Uh, uh, full circle. And and I think my life and uh, in, in many ways has come full circle, which I'm always grateful for. Uh, and yes, I agree with you. It was in chutzpah. It was more like the natural <laughs> logic coming from where I came from that, 
you saw opportunity and in, in terms of decision making, I've always been in a decision making position at home with my mom and my mom's business. And therefore, I came into this company where they were asking us our aspirations. And I thought, well, I'll, I would like to be a director of the company and <laughs> let alone the, the fact that everybody thought it was really strange funny. and funny story. There are elements of what I think is so valuable about what you're discussing. Um, values come through in a big way. Um, and in fact, I suppose linking back to that Woolworths conversation is the, now the chairman of Woolworths and the story that you tell in the book mm. around you finding yourself being uh, a leader in, in this retail space and your customer just glibly, very, very just dismissive of you as a person, as a mm. human and, and what leadership can do to change all of that, even for an employee. You want to relay the story? Mm. Well, I, I think the, the story very much so linked to the values and how companies need to live and walk the talk when it comes to the values is, dem is demonstrated. Uh, so this was 1990. I'm in Weinberg store and uh, that particular weekend, I happened to be the manager supervisor in, 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 on, on site. And the lady insisted, customer, uh, insisted that she wanted to talk to a white manager, let alone uh, the fact that she started giving me the lip around why I was not wearing the uniform, uh, where were the managers, and she wanted to talk to the person in charge. Her world view was a person in charge should be white or at least male, if, 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 if anything. Um, and so anyway, to cut the story short, we, I said to him, because one of our values at Woolworths was and still is customer priority, customer focus and customer is king. You don't want to lose queen. that customer. Yeah. So we called, I said to him, we'll call head office so that they can help you out. And the person who responded on the phone on the customer service line was the head of retail uh, operations. And uh, she relayed her story very upset and also went on to say she just didn't appreciate the fact that she was being told by a black person um, that she can't get what she was looking for. And the other person on the line said to her, ma'am, I'm really sorry that you've had a bad day and you can't get what you're looking for. Uh, that can be sorted out. However, the fact that you don't want to be saved by a black person, that's unfortunate. And I wish you don't come and buy from Woolworths again because that person is our colleague. <laughs> and she's got every right to be there. And the person who responded later on became the CEO and then the chairman of Woolworths, that's uh, Simon Sussman. And you realize that the values of the company even then were... One of them was including uh, inclusion of, of diverse people. And, and so as a leader, he felt very strongly around leaving the values of the company. It's, it brings me to other stories around where I find values come in very strongly. It's by no coincidence for me that I think values are central to, to how you want to lead. Tell me about the story of Ebi. Is it Ebi? Is that how you say it? Well, he was either happy or Abby, depending <laughs> to whom you were talking Correct. to. But you refer to him as Abby. I refer to him as Abby. Your story around Abby. Tell me around, I mean, it's, it's, it's a roller coaster story. But your experience of Abby at the very beginning was yeah. when? 
So at the very beginning, uh, my so Abi Sindani, it's Abi Sindani for other people. For other people. Correct, yes. uh, so so having grown up in Staterheim in the village where my mom had the shop, you always knew who was who in the village because people came and congregated around the shop, and Abi was this coloured. Blue, uh, in fact, was not even colored. He was more blonde. He was a blonde boy. Blue-eyed boy who had been brought to the village by his mom, who who was working in Johannesburg, but the mom left him with the grandmother. And because the grandmother was not really paying attention and she had her own challenges, including drinking, so Abby ended up being the child who used to come to the shop unwashed. And the kids in the village, being kids, really teased him terribly so. And, and, and the big issue around the children teasing Abby was that they called him Amberbas. Mm-hmm. We all called him Amberbas almost umlungu. Mm-hmm. And therefore they would say, one day when you are the bus, you will forget about us. I, I reflect a lot on, on, for me, what was a very pivotal moment of, of him collapsing, mm. foaming at the mouth. Mm. Um, he had eaten grass. Yeah. He had been hungry. And, and, and this is the part that for me was always puzzling and still kind of telling for all of us as human beings how you can let a child starve to that extent. The issue was that because there was this negativity around Abby mm-hmm. being an amber bus, he was not seen as being part of the village. So when Nobody people wanted were eating, him. no one would give him food. And out of but desperation... Your mother did. My, my mom, because, yeah. you know, my mom looked after the village people. And so at home, he used to get food. So this particular day, uh, the other kids were shouting, something has happened to Abby. And someone, and they used to call him my child. For some reason, I think, because I used to intervene on his behalf. And they said, no, little, your child is Abby. Something has happened to him. So when we rushed out, he was foaming in the mouth. And there was something green, some green stuff tickling um, off his mouth. And and so it came we, we, when we took him to hospital. And at the time I had come back from university so I could drive and I took him to hospital. And they said he had been eating grass because he was starving. And you come to think about it at the time in the village, no one was left to starve. Yes, because people were growing things. We, we had food gardens and, and everyone would share food, but Abby was seen as white. And therefore, as a child, that was kind of not really in there. And no wonder he had the trauma, that yeah. the psychological trauma that got him to appear, what, 10, 20 years later on TV, having lost complete memory of what had happened to him as a child. Because in the book, I tell the story of how he was now appearing on TV saying he He was abducted. He was abducted by some family. He's looking for his family. But, But I think even Central, there's so many things to learn from that particular story that you tell because even the system rejected him you know, homes that took him in. There was always just this rejection, this constant rejection. I I think at the time, because it was also in the early 90s, 90s. it was probably about 1992, 93, when this incident happened with him. Um, 
the system at the time didn't know how to deal with him. Here is a child who is a union of an African and a white man. And those days, this is, these are the days of group uh, areas, act. areas act. And also where, what was the law where you could marry across yeah. uh, the, the different colors. What orphanages were yeah, going to look so after So who him. was going to look after him? And, and so he was being shifted around until that particular incident. Because after he came out of hospital, obviously the social workers did indicate to the authorities that there's a white child mm -hmm. staying in the village and so he was eventually adopted by a family yeah. in the colored area. Today, um, and I thought of you actually because I was going to talk to you, I looked at the footage of that uh, coming out of prison mm. and um, when he was up at the podium at the balcony and he was reading his speech, what struck me were his glasses. Because those were Mum Winnie Mandela's glasses. I don't know if you oh, knew that. Oh, okay. I didn't. I didn't yes, pick that so one up. So he didn't have his own reading glasses. Mm. He was struggling to read off the piece of paper, and then somebody had the foresight <laughs> to hand him over Mama's um, glasses. So wow. I looked at the glasses and I thought, this is interesting, and and it just stayed with me because I was thinking of you and my conversation with you, and I thought. Wow, what a privilege you had. What a privilege you had to spend wow. the time that you did with her. Because you were, I suppose, convenient. Were you just... I, I happen to be very <laughs> convenient and I will always be grateful yes. for that opportunity. Convenient in that this was like in 1994 yes. when now Uma Manu Notata were, were going through their yes. own personal stuff and therefore yeah. she was moving to Cape Town as a member of parliament. Yeah. And her lawyer, who happened to be our friend Pops Makeza, mm -hmm called desperately looking for a place to hide her so that the media would not be able to access it during the parliamentary proceedings because at the time you know everybody wanted to know what's happening to Winnie Mandela yes. where is she in the bigger scheme of things and and yeah and the fact that then we accommodated her gratefully so and <laughs> initially reluctantly so <laughs> yeah because i when pops called i said no i don't have the be. space for not winnie mandela in my house how is that possible i mean she's a goddess how yes. would i even be asked to look after someone like mama winnie and a, a week ended up being almost like three and a four months but what stands out for me about that time is just her constant leadership from where she sits at any point right um being very interested in what you do and, and interrogating you even in spaces that you never imagined in your work to say, well, yeah, you're running a CSI in this particular neighborhood. Yeah. Who said yeah. they want X, Y, Z? How do you know for sure, Nolita, that this is what the needs and, of the and communities are? The biggest lesson, sorry to yes, come in, ahead. but the biggest lesson for me through that journey and that process was the fact that when as a person you are congruent and and really live your values and who you are 24-7, it doesn't matter where you are. You will always be that person. You will always be an activist. You will always be a parent. Hold you will always be yep. a thoughtful person because we would sit and have conversations and I would be saying, I'm running, going to visit a project and she would ask those questions. What, what project? Who have you consulted with? Does the community know that How you do are you know? Coming? How do you know you are talking to the right people? And 
this is 1994, 94, yeah, 94, and I'm thinking, okay, I, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> and her biggest issue was always, please make sure that you don't build white elephants mm -hmm. in the communities be just because the companies have money and the funding. And that helped with my journey throughout the years because I would now uh, ask the same questions of younger generation and even managers when they say we've got a project and we have committed X amount of friends or dollars and I would ask who are you consulting with? Are you talking to stakeholders? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's really lessons that have stayed with me throughout. You know, when, when we talk of the 90s and we talk about the environment that you went into when you started going to the workplace, very different to what it became post-94, it yeah. really became a bit of a haven. I mean, we were the poster child. We had women as part of our agenda, as a national agenda. And that came through. You were seeing us being, you know, women were premiers, women mm. were in the boardroom. Mm. It was, you speak very fondly of how you are a benefactor, a beneficiary of that system. How did it all go so wrong? How come we are finding ourselves here now? Well, I, I, I still need to first confirm and affirm again that I am a beneficiary of affirmative action, employment equity, and including the broad-based policies of a, a black economic empowerment of South Africa. And, and, and it's important to affirm and confirm that because today with the kind of challenges that we have, it's important still for us to own what we have in terms of the regulatory framework that enables black people and women to be able to fight in spaces that are not necessarily public but in private spaces. And the boardroom happens to be one of those spaces because there you don't have the government coming to say, oh shame, do this for so and so. You have to make sure that you back up your voice and your, your decision-making by a legislative and a regulatory framework that is enabling. So I want yes. to put it on the table Very because important, it's important yeah. that yeah. Uh, we, we, we look at that because, again, the, the generation today are quick to jump to Absolutely. saying, oh, these processes are not working. And I'm saying, you know, you can, you can legislate a lot of things, but you can't legislate behavior. And, and to your point, what happened, it's the behavior of people that didn't change. And also the behavior of people that change for the worst. Because people realize then that, you know, I can come and use the regulatory framework to my advantage, but not That's think sincerely. about the broader agenda of transformation. Because our generation knew that we were there because of what the forefathers and foremothers had done for us and therefore as you sit in that boardroom as you sit in that meeting room you are there representing those who are not there mm -hmm. and therefore the transformation transformation agenda as a leader and as a manager has got to be at the core of what to do and perhaps one also wants to talk about how important then leadership is because exactly as you just put it we can have all the legislation in the world without any will and, and the will has to be broad there's got to be buy-in and oftentimes buy-in is not necessarily through written stuff it's through a specific kind of temperament culture mm. a mood which we don't quite have at the moment I, 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 you know the whole issue around leadership and personal value systems of 
all of us being aligned That's to it. the corporate values and the organization's values is important because at the end of the day, that will inform how you make decisions in a given in any given situation with or without people watching as to what you are doing because you are knowing that you're coming from a, a point of principle and also you are coming from a position where you are saying, I am not doing this for myself. I am here as a decision maker to make a difference for more people outside this particular boardroom. So um, I the, 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 the whole storyline, and not storyline, but the book and the themes that come through, I think it's no coincidence that the culture and the values of the decision makers in any given situation are important because then it's through those that we can change the world. Rather than make a, make a excuses, ladies and gentlemen, Norita Fagude, and uh, the book is called Boardroom Dancing. It is available at retail stores now, and that conversation will be available as a podcast. Thanks, everybody. I mean, we've run out of time so quick. Can't believe it. <laughs> we run out of. We did run out thank of time. Thank you, thank you so much, and I'm grateful for this interview. And I also am excited to see that you are one of those people who have come through all these years and have been consistent in how you lead and live your life and also how you've managed your professional career. Really appreciate so, it. Good to see Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank it's you. three o'clock, the very latest in uh, SABC News with Utsila Sakwa.